always be a part of our church, always and forever. I want you to turn to two places in the Bible. The, the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 27, and then the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, in that order, Matthew chapter 27, and Genesis chapter 2. Appreciate Eric for helping us today play uh, the bass guitar. Dave, thanks for fixing this. I just noticed that. Thank you. Little things make a difference. Thanks. I remember not far from here, off of Airport Road, uh, when I was a little boy, my aunt lived there, my mother's sister. This would have been in the very early 60s. Um, in an apartment, we went over there to go swimming, had a diving board. Remember when they had those before lawsuits came about and they took them, all of them off? And uh, I was the oldest uh, kid, uh, even though I was a little kid. So, you know, when you're the oldest, you're experimented. That's what's wrong with us. You know, if you're the oldest, they experiment you with everything. So... Uh, he said, would jump off the diving board and into the deep end. And I can remember my aunt there kind of dog paddling in the end. And, you know, the average depth of a, of a pool is about eight feet back then. And usually, if anything, they've kind of shortened them. But back then, it was about eight feet. And I did, and I survived. And I got back and did it again and again. But when, you're, uh, when you, your feet can't touch bottom, it's kind of a... A scary thing. And then years ago, maybe about, I don't know, 20, 25 years, I can't remember where we were, but we were somewhere and we went swimming and I dove down into the uh, a pool somewhere in the deep end. I couldn't, I couldn't touch the bottom and I came up top and I found it. It was 12 feet deep. Now that doesn't sound deep, but I'm not a diver. And then I, I began to think, wow, that's a lot deeper and I really thought, and I went back down, but you just can't dive in and find it. You have to intentionally go down and find it. And that got me thinking about uh, depths of, of, of pools. And the deepest pool, the deepest man-made diving pool in the world is in Saudi Arabia. It's 170 feet deep. I saw a picture of it, watched a video of it. Scary, man. There's some others, you know. That's, that's over half of a football field, almost a, you know, 60 yards, not quiet. And uh, people going down in that think something's wrong with them. But uh, a man-made diving pool, 170 feet deep. The deepest location on earth is... Um, if you take the Philippines and go east and go Hawaii and you go west and you go south of Guam, there's a trench there called the Mariana Trench. Some of you are familiar with this in the Pacific. It's the deepest place on our planet. And that specific trench is 36,201 feet. That's about seven miles deep. Now, I want to give you a perspective on that. If you take the tallest mountain in America, which is Mount Everest, you could take Mount Everest and put it in the Mariana Trench in that 
the deepest part of the ocean there. The peak of Mount Everest would be under sea level a mile and a half. That's how deep that place is. It's hard for your mind to to grasp that enormity. I'm going somewhere with this, by the way. You say, why aren't you preaching the Bible? Just, Just listen for a minute. This has purpose. Um, on our 20th anniversary, Paul and I were going, we went to Bermuda. Uh, we've been there twice. We took uh, Ashley and her cousin uh, for her high school graduation. And then uh, on our, we had some, we went back the first time we went on our 20th anniversary. We enjoyed it so much. And we went out of New York, um, flew out of New York, and um, or flew to New York, and we, we cruised out of New York. So when we got there, we rented a moped. Now, can you send me on the moped? I can't either. I can't either. It was Paula's idea. I rejected the idea, but she insisted. And after she insisted, I liked it. And when we got home, I said, I'm getting a motorcycle. She said, no, you're not. (laughs) And so we rode around Bermuda, which is not a large island, shaped like a fish hook. You look it up, it's literally shaped like a fish hook. When you come in the way that the boats, at least both times we came in, you come uh, to, to turn in around a place called Fort St. Catherine, uh, which was built in 1612. It was literally, a, it's still there, it's a kind of a museum now. And so we went to the, to the very tip of the island. We were driving all around. I was having such a good time on the moped and Paul was white as could be, and I was having fun like that, clutching me and yelling. It was so much fun. And so they had a, a, a beach there, and so we, we uh, hardly anybody there. And so I, well, this is nice. So we went there, and um, it's where people first, it's the very tip of the island, like a fish hook like this, in Fort St. Catharines here. And if you go over here, here's America, almost a thousand miles. I think it's about nine hundred miles is Charleston, right over here. If you go about <clears throat> approximately three thousand miles, you have Portugal up here, you have Africa. Bermuda is in the middle of nowhere of the Atlantic, and it is the, the, the water. Now the water there is still in the Gulf Stream; it's warm. But that's where you get, Eric knows, anybody been in the Navy, that's where they get navy blue. You travel out there, the water is beautiful blue. But when you get there, it's, it's that clear water, beautiful. And so you are in the middle of, no, it's built on top of a volcanic explosive uh, rock that just came up. And you can see it. I love Google Earth. Paul knows I like it. I look Google Earth and find all these things. And so there's the Atlantic and there's nothing. Then there's a little puff, and that's where Bermuda is, where this volcano exploded. And that's where the island was birthed by God's hand. And at the very tip of it, in the middle of nowhere, is Fort St. Catherine. Now, here's what I like to do. I'm kind of boring besides mopeds. I'm a moped man. But... But I just like to go out and stand in the water. It just feels good. So I just go out there, and I stood out in that water for three hours. And, uh, and I just stood there 
in that water. Every now and then I'd turn around and see if there were any sharks coming, you know. Because you could, it was clear and you could see them coming. And because uh, I did have enough sense to know now I'm out in the middle of nowhere. But, and here's the point of me telling you this story. Once I began to engage Google Earth, my mind was blown that, okay, this is, at the, this is the top of the fish hook. We are in the middle of the Atlantic, and I'm literally at the top of this island, and I'm, I'm, I'm out here. Nobody else is out there at the tip of this island all by myself. Now, it's not the Mariana Trench. <laughs> but I was, when I was looking at that, I was overwhelmed by the smallness of me and the immensity of our planet. It, it was just it, it just, it just blew my mind. Now, I tell you some of those stories, and, and, and it's a very feeble attempt to let you know somewhat of my, my, my emotions and, and my spiritual state as I have been reading the Bible in the last five and six weeks on this subject of what Jesus accomplished for us when he died on the cross. He spoke this this fourth statement from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And what he does is God gives us a peak kind of at the edges. And he shows us at the edges what happened enough so that we can be saved and cause us wonder where we will worship him. But there was a transaction that happened in that darkness between the Father and the Son that is a mystery. Now that doesn't mean that well, it's a mystery, we don't understand it. Here, here's the thing. Within that mystery, God did his greatest work. And my job today, and I'm going to fail at it, but I'm going to try, is to get you to peek as much as we can at at a little bit of that mystery. I want you to look in Matthew 27. Look at verse 45, if you would. Matthew 27, 45. Now from the sixth hour, that's noon, because their day started at 6 a.m. So the sixth hour, you add six hours to it, which would be six plus six is 12. So from noon, there was darkness over all the land. So he was crucified at 9 a.m., And at noon, darkness over all the land, a supernatural darkness, until the ninth hour. And the ninth hour is three o'clock, from nine till three. And about the ninth hour, so at three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And that's Arabic, which was the common language back then. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, they said, This man calleth for Elias. Straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed, gave him a drink. And the rest said, Let let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. They said that in mockery. Now, as we try to plumb the depths of the Mariana Trench, so as to say, there's some mysteries here, and I just want to kind of 
poke at this first one here, the mystery of separation. The mystery of separation. Verse 46, Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken? Why hast thou forsaken me? The word forsaken. Why have you deserted me? Why have you left me behind? Now, this word is the very purpose of Calvary. The crucifixion was a part of it, but it wasn't the essence of it. It showed man's cruelty, but being forsaken is the heart of it. This is the mystery of it. It's the separation. Now, what happened here, and and I covered this last week, and I wanted to cover more, but I want to go to a new section here. But what happened here was Jesus died as our substitute. And He became our sin bearer. God the Father was judging the guilt of your sins and my sins. And the sins of every person that had ever lived. Past, present, and future while He hung on the tree in those moments. Carrying your sin debt. And the Father had to turn His back upon His Son. That's one reason in a symbolic way, in a literal way. But in the literal sense, there was a symbol where God judged His Son and He forsook His Son because He could not look upon His Son. Now that's what happened. Now here, here's the question I want to answer this morning, and I'm going to fail at it, but I don't want you to turn me off. And I've asked the Lord to try to help me this morning because this is difficult to explain. But this is why some of you doubt your salvation is what I'm going to talk about this morning because you you don't get this. And here's the question. Why did this happen? Why Why did the Father forsake His Son? And here's why it happened. It happened because the wrath of God, the Father might be satisfied and that his perfect justice might be satisfied against the penalty of sin. Now, if we're not careful, if we're not careful, here's what we do. We, we talk much and we ought to. We talk so much about the love of God at the cross. And it was certainly there, the mercy and the grace and the goodness and the kindness of God was manifested to the cross. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believed in Him should not perish. Well, the Son was perishing. And at the cross there was not only the goodness of God, there was also the justice of God. There was also the righteousness of God. There was also the the judgment of God because God is not just good and kind and merciful. He is, but God is holy. He's righteous and He's just. God, listen carefully, God is the most perfect, the most holy. His love is a holy love. It's a righteous love. He is the most perfect, the most balanced being In the universe, he was not created, he's always existed, and he is perfectly balanced in every attribute. He shares some of his attributes with us. He's faithful, we can be faithful. 
But some of his attributes he does not share. He's omnipotent. We can't share those. That's what makes him distinctly God. He's omniscient. He knows all things. We cannot have that. That's what makes him almighty God. So when he died on the cross, and stay with me, we not only see his love, but we also see his wrath at the very same time. Now I want you to mark your place there in Matthew 27. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. When Adam and Eve sinned, they sinned because they violated a command that God gave them in the garden. Because love always has a test. If it can't be tested, it's not love. And if you violated the command, it had an attached penalty, which was death. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. You can, eat, you can have anything you want. You can have anything you want, but notice the conjunction here. But, of the tree, there's one thing you cannot have. There's one thing you cannot do. But of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not. Now, by the way, this is in a state of innocence. They had not sinned. And I would say one of the reasons for this is he was testing their love for him. Thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day, in the moment that thou eatest thereof of this tree, watch this, thou shalt surely die. Thou shalt surely die. And guess what? They did eat of it, and in that moment they began to die physically. They died spiritually. The word means separated they were separated from God before they fellowship with God. Now there was a separation. God had to come seeking them. They were hiding. But God did not want them to die eternally, to be forever separated from Him in a place called hell. And so He made a provision for them. But I want you to notice here in the text that, that this is justice speaking. There was love. He gave them an abundance. There was grace. There was kindness. But there was also justice. If you do this, here is the attached penalty. In the Garden of Eden, sometimes there there are theologians, there are people that study the Bible. And I think, have you not read the Bible? And a very popular statement, I want you to listen carefully, that you will hear. And this is incorrect, that the grace of God is not given in the Old Testament. You never... The Old Testament is all about law. Don't read the Old Testament. It's about law. You know, the first time the word grace is used in the Old Testament, Genesis 6, Noah found... Finish it for me. Noah found what? Grace in the eyes of the Lord. Well, that's the word, but you find grace even before that. In Genesis chapter 3... This is still in the garden. We don't know if it's a week or two weeks. I think it was early. The Bible doesn't tell us. But they had sinned. Adam and Eve had sinned. And now he's judging them for their sin. And God begins to talk to the serpent who had deceived them. In Genesis 3.15, and God says, I will put enmity or hostility or hatred between thee, that is the serpent's seed, and the woman's 
and between thy seed and her seed, your children aren't going to get along. And the seed that you have, the Christ child, is going to come one day out of this. This is the first promise of the Messiah. And it, this, this seed that will come produce through, through your seed, he's speaking to Eve, it shall, and, and he's talking to the devil, it shall bruise thy head, and thou, he's speaking to Satan, shall bruise his heel. Now what's happening to Jesus when he's on the cross and he's in the darkness, even before the darkness? Satan is bruising his heel. Some of you have had uh, these heel bruises and even broken your foot in places, but I understand that I have not. A heel bruise is a very serious injury. It's very painful. And, and, and it's a picture here of severe pain. He said, you're, you're going to cause the Messiah great pain. You're going to bruise his heel. But a head wound is a fatality. And when you bruise, listen, he tells the devil, when you bruise his heel with his heel that you bruise, he's going to take with that bruised heel, he is going to bruise your head and he is going to slay you and your power. And that's what Jesus did when he was on the cross. Now, in Genesis 3, this is an expression, this is a promise that there's coming a Redeemer to deliver them from their sins. I want you to see this. Now, if you have your Bible, this is Genesis 3.15. Now, what did he tell them in Genesis 2? He said, in the day you do this, you're going to surely die. Move down a few verses, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was a mother of all Does it say death? What does it say? Living. Do you know what the word Eve means? It means giver of life. Do you know what this is? This was a confession of faith in the Garden of Eden when Adam named his wife giver of life. And he's speaking about the coming of Messiah. That we're dying, but you're going to give birth to one that's going to give us life. And then Adam went out because they knew they were naked. You remember that. And he went out and he killed some animals. And then he covered themselves up. But that's not what happened. Read the rest of the verse in Genesis 3.21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God. Did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them? Don't miss that. There's Bible stories that will have Adam that's going on. Adam did not do this. God did this. Now I want to ask you a question. And this is what I've asked the Lord, God, please help me because this is hard to communicate. The natural mind does not get this, but this is why some of you struggle so much. Some of you are, have been saved and, and the devil comes and intimidates you with this. 
Why did God do this? Now, the Bible does not say this, but I believe this was an expression of grace. I think that this is when God introduced sacrifice to Adam and Eve. He wasn't getting, Adam could have gone out and got clothes. God killed the animals and was showing them that sin demands a price. The wages of sin is death. You're dying, but something else is going to die for your sin. And this is the earliest expression of it. Now, the next thing I'm going to show you is my opinion. I cannot prove this, but I believe this. Eve gets pregnant. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. I have gotten a man from the Lord. I remember I would read that and I would think, well, they they knew they had a, a son. But I'll tell you what I believe in context with what Jesus or what God had done for them in Genesis 3.20. This is my opinion, but it's the opinion of some others that have written also. I think what they said, I think they said, here's the Messiah. Because he, he named her the mother of all. I, I think their faith was so full and rich. And, and sin had been paid for that they were anticipating the Messiah. Of course it wasn't. But that's, that was the grace of God manifested when the sacrifice for sin. And that sin was to be paid for. Listen. The Father is not able to allow sinners into heaven. Sin must be paid for. And when Jesus was in the darkness there, there was a transaction between Him and the Father. When He said, My God, My God, why have you forsaken Me? And if your sin, listen, if your sins are forgiven, it is not because you're good. It is because someone else paid for your penalty. Period. Period. Good people don't go to heaven. Saved people go to heaven. And sometimes we talk about forgiven. I've been forgiven. Well, that doesn't mean cleansed. It means, in fact, in the old days, they don't do this much anymore. But if you owed a debt that you couldn't pay, and they were going to write it off, they would take a stamp, and they would send it to you, and they would put a stamp on there, and you would get the bill And you still owe the money, but the stamp said forgiven. You know what that means? I don't know it anymore. You know what the word forgiven means? It means to bear the burden. It means your creditor bore the burden for you. It's forgiven. I don't owe the debt because somebody else paid the debt for you. You have been forgiven, so I'm going to heaven Not because I'm good, not because I'm a church member, not because I'm a Baptist or I've been Baptist. None of that stuff. And I have supreme assurance, supreme blessed assurance 
Not because I grew up in a Christian home. Not because I even read the Bible every day. But because when Jesus, when the darkness, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of this mysterious transaction, we know enough about what happened there. When Jesus bore my burden, every single one of them. Now there's a word in the Bible, it's, a, it's not just used in the Bible, but and I'm so glad the translators used it. It's, it's a legal term called propitiate. Propitiated. It has an angle on forgiveness. The word propitiate means to appease or to fully satisfy a demand. It means this, that when, when you offend someone, they establish the requirements for payment. You don't. And until you satisfy those requirements, they're not propitiated. I was reading Jerry Bridges this week on this idea, and he said it does mean to appease. It does mean to fully satisfy a demand. But he said it even means more. It means to be exhausted in that sense. I have fully exhausted the demand. And when Jesus died, when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the Father, and and I'll go into detail as much because I want to help you. I want to bless you. Because the Father was exhausting this, not just out of His Son, because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, there's one God manifest in three persons. He was exhausting it out of Himself, if you will. He was paying the price from Himself. Now listen to this. Jesus did not just die for you, He died for God. And I think, some, listen, sometimes we say, oh, Jesus died for me. He did. But you're never going to get full assurance until you realize that he died for the Father. And I know that he died for the Father and he paid sin's due penalty and he fulfilled the justice of God, the righteous demands of God in the transaction, in that holy moment, in the darkness between between the Father and the Son, when, when nobody was there but the Holy Spirit and the Father, where no one will ever enter. And he didn't say, my Father, but he said, my God. Because the relationship, the fell not the relationship was broken. They, they were still related, but the fellowship was broken. And, and he bore the burden of, a propitiation to pay the sin debt. And now the Father says, you're free to go. You have been redeemed. You've been ransomed. You know, we talk about Jesus being our ransom. I want to ask you a question. Who was a ransom paid to? We've been ransomed. Who was it paid to? I've read where some people say, well, it was paid to the devil. No, it wasn't. It was paid to his father. So his father could release us and give us our freedom of conscience. And I don't have to go around wringing my hands. Have I done enough? Did I pray long enough? Did I say the right words? It has nothing to do with any of that. I've been propitiated. Jesus died for every single sin. 
and he, he exhaustively satisfied the righteousness and the demands of a just and a holy and a righteous God in those moments. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, in this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. You can have life. Herein is love. Not that we love God. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. The Father. But that the Father loved you. And the Father sent His Son. He sent His Son to to be the propitiation for your sins. The old legal term is to expiate. It means to atone for guilt. doesn't mean you're not guilty anymore. That's justification. But the payment had to be made. No, I'm not guilty anymore, but I'm only put into position there by the propitiation because the payment was made. In the Old Testament, there was a place called the mercy seat. And once a year, in October, the high priest went in there and he put the blood of a goat or the blood of a lamb that had been tested to make sure it was pure. And uh, the blood was a propitiation, the satisfaction that... The demands that a righteous God had against his people were satisfied. Now the mercy seat, watch this, the mercy seat also had justice. There is no there is no mercy without justice. It's impossible. Now, this is heavy. I'm not trying to be a philosopher, but listen, there is no mercy without justice. And when you came in, The reason you needed mercy was because of justice. And you came there and God met us at the mercy seat. But the propitiation was not the mercy seat. That's Jesus. But His blood was a propitiation. It's what He shed for us. It's how He died for us. In Psalm 85 and verse 10 The writer said, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. These are opposites. Mercy and truth don't go with one another. When truth comes in, it says, he must die. He violated the law. Mercy comes in and says, forgive him. Righteousness says, he did this. The law demands peace comes in and says, listen, isn't there another way? And the Bible says, but they, they've come together. They've met together. They kissed each other. And, and where they met together was at the cross. Amen. At the cross, listen, at the cross, you see the love of God. You see the righteousness of God. You see God's anger thundered in the darkness against his hatred for sin when Jesus says, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And you see his kindness and his compassion for sinners in, in the very same moment. And your sins, your sins have been propitiated for you.
In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 4, the Bible says, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him, speaking of Christ, stricken. Now look at this. Don't miss this. Please look at this. Smitten of God. Smitten of God and afflicted. Now I've heard people say, well, God, God was a bully. I've heard these liberal theologians say, I, I don't want to have anything to do with a God like that. And stay with me. God did smite His Son. Isaiah 53, 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. What does that mean? He had put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He, that is God the Father, shall see of the travail of his soul. That was what was going on in the darkness. The word travail means to labor. It's the effect of the labor, the sorrow, the pain. And it's not his body, it's his soul. It's the sun becoming sin. This is not a distant father. This is not an indifferent father laughing in heaven. He sees the travail of the soul of his son. But at the same time, he's satisfied that justice has been propitiated, that the price has been paid. Listen, God the Father... And I'm going to delve into this later in another message because I don't want you to miss this. And God the Son. See, sometimes it's pointed out like this. Well, God, Jesus had to really twist the Father's arm. Jesus is the one that loves you. The Father, He's kind of a distant person. Oh, no, that's not true. That's not true. The Father loves you. We sing the song here sometimes. How deep the Father's love for us. The Father loves you. Follow these verses. I'm going to emphasize some words. John 3.16 For God, this is the Father, so loved the world that He gave. He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believed Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent. This was His initiative, the Father's initiative. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. John chapter 4 and verse 34, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of Him that sent me and to finish His work. My Father sent me to do this work. John five twenty four. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word... And believeth on him that sent me. This is over and over, especially John. Hath everlasting life. And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. The Father sent me. I'm here on a mission. It's a mission of redemption. It's a a mission of propitiation. And the Father and I, we're we're in on this together. Because in, in, in a couple of years, I'm going to be in this darkness. On Calvary. And He's going to pour on to me all of your sins. And and my Father's going to have to turn His back upon me. And He sent me to do this. And it's going to hurt both of us. 
John chapter 8 and verse 42, Jesus said, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but, but He sent me. He sent me. I must work the works of Him that sent me. While it is day, for night cometh. The day cometh when no. While it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. Do you, do you get the idea? He, God, the Father sent His Son. I love this one. In Luke chapter one and verse seventy-eight, the Bible says, "Through the tender mercy of our God, speaking of the Father, whereby." The day spring, that's the dawn. This is speaking about Jesus. The day spring from on high hath visited us. Do you know why the day spring, do you know why Jesus, the morning star, do you know why he visited us? It was because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the compassion, the pity, the sympathetic affection, the mercy, and the Father sent His Son. He loves you. And when He was there in that darkness, exacting His justice, because that's who He is, And his son was being punished for you. This is not just praying a prayer. This is not walking down an aisle. This is having a relationship with a God that that not only died in your place, but he did everything that he can do. What else does he need to do? To enter into the relationship and then to maintain the relationship. It's abominable. It's abominable. That you would say, well, and and I'm not making fun of you. Please don't think I am. But, well, I'm just not sure. I'm not sure that I'm saved. I just don't feel it. What do you mean you don't feel it? How did he feel? How did he feel in those three hours? What did he suffer for? What kind of feeling are you looking for? In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world in order that that we might live through Him. Here in His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment, the exhaustive, complete satisfaction, the utter payment for our sins. And I ask you this morning, where are your sins today? Are you shouldering them? I'll bring them to the cross. They're already there to be truthful. He paid for them. Just come and say, God, I, I, uh, I receive this gift of eternal life. 
that you have given to me. I receive it. And I humbly receive it and ask that you help me to walk in that life. I've been reading a book uh, that's been troubling to me, but I'm going to finish it. It's it's a book on uh, terrorism. And on the different acts of terrorism that occurred in the last 20 years or so. I read about an act of terrorism in Kenya, Africa, where the terrorists came into a, a mall and they shot up these people and dozens of people were killed. And a precious lady was having coffee in a coffee shop. And they came by the coffee shop and began to spray their weapons. And she dove onto the floor and, and she was not hit by any of the bullets. But the man beside her was and his telephone began to go off. Someone was calling him. And she reached over to silence his phone because the... The terrorists were going around and they were shooting people that were not dead inside of the cafe and all through the mall. And she wanted to silence the phone, wouldn't call attention. And she felt something warm and realized the man was, was bleeding in a very profound way. And she had an idea. It was a very terrible idea, but it was the only thing she could do. And she began to take that man's blood and she began to wipe that man's blood all over her body. And then her only hope was that when they came by and they saw that man's blood on her, that they thought that was she. She's dead because our bullets have hit her. And they did. And they left her alone. And she said in her comment, she said, I wish that I could know who that man was because he will never know what he died, but he saved my life. That is not a, a complete analogy, not even a good analogy, but it's an analogy on this front. That Jesus willingly, willingly, propitiated for your sins. He wasn't shot by somebody. It wasn't an accident. It was intentional. And says, I, I have my sacrifice for you. And the only hope, the only hope that you have is my blood to put over your sins so that one day on judgment day, when you stand before God, then he looks and he says, all I see is the blood of my son. All I see is the blood of my son. Have your sins been propitiated? They have been, but have you received them? Should you bow your heads with me today?